There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch, hosted by the CM Group. Free Lunch will bring listeners the team's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, last week we talked about elections and possibly some geopolitical risk ahead. Right on. It was a fun discussion. Yep. There's a lot of questions these days about what lies ahead, or a better phrase might be, what lies will we be told ahead? Yeah. That might be something to think about, but we thought today we would talk about the economy. And so to do that, we have a guest joining us today, someone who has been on the show a couple times already. But he was last on the show on episode 99, which is almost 100 episodes ago. It's too long. It is. I can't believe the time goes so quickly. But Shay Shetria, I think I got that right this time, is joining us today. Shay is Director of Investment Strategies for North America at Russell Investments. He's been nice enough to join us for past webinars, lunch presentations, evening presentations. He's done it all for us, Craig. You betcha. What he told me to do, what his favorite thing he enjoys doing was to podcast on the self-proclaimed number one investment podcast in the free world, that being the free lunch. Right on. So we had to have him back. So welcome back, Shay. Well, thanks for having me back. I can't believe it's been three times now. Hopefully it's not like three strikes and you're out, (laughs) but (laughs) it is an honor. It's great to be back. You guys are awesome. You guys do a great job, not only on the podcast, but I know firsthand the great job that you guys do with your clients. So thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Very kind. Well, listen, Shay, let's dive in. And maybe before we start talking about what's going on right now and what we can look forward to over the next year, can you just kind of sum up for us how you see 2023 having played out? It would be fair to say that we came out of 2023 feeling differently than the way we went into it. And what a year 2023 was. I mean, first off, just from a capital markets perspective, think back to 2022, taking you all the way back. It was an environment where it was really challenging to make money, quite frankly. 2022, as we know, it was a pretty difficult year. And 2023 ended up being, considering all that went on, a year where it was pretty challenging to actually lose money because most asset classes were up. And I think what's remarkable is right there, it just shows how discipline plays off. Because if you let 2022 be the goalpost, be the guiding post in terms of your decision-making in 2023, you would have missed out on a pretty phenomenal run. So volatility is par for the course, as we know, but you have to stick to your discipline. I think it's so important for investors to understand. And more so because those returns were earned while equity markets and the financial markets more broadly continued to climb a wall of worry. 2023, we started the year where most economists and market prognosticators were expecting a recession. The consensus was centered somewhere around that 70% probability to a recession. Full disclosure, at Russell Investments, we were also leaning towards recession being the baseline. Our probability was a bit softer than that. We weren't that convicted. We were at around 55%. But the bottom line is most were expecting some economic turbulence and therefore were cautious about the financial markets as we were. And there was plenty of economic uncertainty and noise to deal with. We look at the end number and we kind of forget. Remember what happened March of last year? We had 
the mini banking crisis in the US, which kind of reverberated through to Canadian banks got impacted by that, but not nearly as much as what happened in the US, of course. But we know policymakers stepped in and kind of smoothed the things out and things kind of stabilized in the banking sector and we continue to push forward. But then there was also concerns about, again, back in the US, the debt default. Moody's actually downgraded US Treasury debt from AAA to AA, AA plus. And of course, and sadly, we've got geopolitical tensions that were already elevated and then elevated some more with the war that was going on in Europe. And then, of course, another one breaking out in the Middle East. There was plenty of economic, political, geopolitical risks that the markets had to deal with. But through it all, we had the economy that did not enter a recession in the U.S. And in Canada, it's a little bit different story. We do think that things have clearly softened as the year progressed. And we still think that recession is remains our baseline for Canada, maybe not as much in the U.S. anymore. When we talk about the outlook, we can get into that a little bit more. But the bottom line is this. 2023 ended up being a much stronger year for the markets in large part because we didn't have a recession, particularly in the U.S., and the markets reflected that as well. So the last point I will make is this, as it relates to the equity market rally, particularly the U.S., because that was one of the strongest markets. Geographically speaking, we know it was a very concentrated rally as well, where you had these magnificent seven names with the broader AI theme that really led the way. So the S&P, just to give you, throw out some numbers and I'll round the numbers a bit, but the S&P was up about 26%, the S&P 500, the broad market US index up 26%. The magnificent seven names were up, I think, closer to about 75 to 80%. So when you strip those out, the S&P was actually up closer to around 14, 15% or so. So still a decent return, but not nearly as strong as the headline numbers would indicate because of the concentrated rally that it ended up being. I appreciate you uh, mentioning earlier the word discipline, because even if you strip out the Magnificent Seven, you just had to show up. You just had to be there in some sort of diverse portfolio. And even if it was the Russell 3000 or, you know, or the equal weighted S&P 500, I mean, it didn't matter. Like you just had to show up and it was a, by all measures, a pretty great year. But it was the last two months that was the greatest part. And you had to be there all the way through, you know, in those sad days of October coming off of three pretty poor months in the equity markets and a new war starting in the Middle East. Without that patience and discipline, people might have capitulated and that would have essentially rung the bell for the bottom of the market for 2023. It's true. Like we talk a lot about how, you know, those seven stocks made a big impact on the S&P overall. But hey, I think if we could earn 14% every year out of the equity markets, we'd all be pretty darn happy. Is that your analysis? Darn happy. Yes. Darn happy. That was the year that was. Looking into 2024 now, how would you describe the general economic conditions right now? Where do we stand? It really does depend on which country we're talking about. I think Canada versus U.S., we have slightly different perspective. Any preference where we start? We do not have a home country bias here. We're agnostic. That's right. Same here. You know, let's start with the U.S. because obviously the U.S. economy and the Fed really sets the stage for the globe. So we can start there. I did indicate that at the beginning of last year, in 2023, we did have recession being the baseline. Our qualitative probability was around 55%. But we have actually down shifted that recession probability. So recession is no longer our baseline. We've lowered it to 45%. But at 45%, it's still... The important point to note is that at 45%, it's still elevated relative to what it would be 
if you knew nothing about the economy. So the question then would be, well, how do you relate that? Or what does 45% actually mean? And the way to think about it is the default probability, if you will, is that recession risks, not knowing anything else about the economy is about 15 to 20%. And where does that come from? Well, think about the business cycle. It is a cycle. One out of seven or eight years, you're going to have a recession. So you do the math, you get roughly 15%. So on average, that's the recession probability, not knowing anything. So at 45%, what we're saying is that, yes, directionally, we think that recession risks have come down a bit, but they're still elevated relative to what they would be in a normal environment. So why did we reduce the recession probability? For a couple of key reasons. One is that the labor market is normalizing in a much more orderly fashion than many would have expected, especially at the start of the last year. We've seen the demand for labor come down, not at the cost of job losses, which historically speaking, it's kind of unusual. Obviously, we're not, the cycle isn't done yet. There could be some more, there could be job losses down the line. But so far, the progress that's been made in terms of labor demand relative to the supply side, we've seen that rebalancing take place in a more orderly fashion. So I think that's an important point. The second point is on inflation. Of course, we know the Fed's been after inflation, getting inflation back to target. Although core inflation is still above 3%, the core PCE that they really target, but the bottom line is core inflation is still above. But When you actually look at the shorter term momentum of inflation, so over the last six months on an annualized basis, actually inflation, core inflation has actually trending closer to around 2%. And we do think that there's more disinflation in the pipeline, particularly as it relates to housing inflation in the US. So we do think that inflation will continue to come down, which is also another tick, another positive. And the third one, which is very important for the US economy and which is where Perhaps the differences with the Canadian economy is on the balance sheet side. The U.S. economy, we know, is 70% consumer-based. It's a consumption-driven economy, and household balance sheets are in the U.S. are pretty clean. Debt to disposable income, debt to GDP, you know, they're well, well, well below the levels that they were back during the GFC 2008-2009 levels. So much cleaner balance sheets today in the U.S. means that the risk of households being disrupted is a lot less today than it was back then. And being a consumer-based economy, that's important. So those three factors have led us to reduce the recession probability, but we're still on watch, right? We do know that business conditions are still pretty tight. We know what the surveys are suggesting, that things are still a little bit you know, sluggish. So we're keeping an eye, but we reduce it as not as the baseline. Now for Canada, it's a slightly different story. And we do think that the Canadian economy, first off, Q3, we already seen the Canadian economy contract. GDP was down about 1%. So we know that there is some sluggishness there. The BOC in its recent meeting pretty much acknowledged that growth will be flatlined all the way out through the first quarter of 2024. So they've pretty much acknowledged that growth is going to remain sluggish, which is in line with what many of the business surveys are indicating in Canada as well. Of course, the BOC isn't looking to cut right away in large part because and they held rates at 5%. In large part because of inflation, inflation expectations, as well as wage growth being a little bit more problematic. So even though from a Bank of Canada perspective, you know, they're looking at the macro environment that's a little bit challenging, perhaps achieving their inflation target, they believe it might take a little bit longer. And therefore, they're not messaging rate cuts. But we do think that eventually both the Fed and the Bank of Canada will be cutting rates as 2024 progresses, just not eminently. But we do think that our baseline view 
and why they will, particularly in Canada, why we do believe that there will be rate hikes, sorry, rate cuts down the line is in large part because we are taking the under, if you will, relative to the BOC. We don't only believe that the economy is sluggish. We do think that the economy is at risk of a recession, not a severe one, but a mild recession. And what's interesting is how do you measure recession? Now, of course, we always look at the headline GDP numbers as a proxy for how the economy is doing. And on that basis, we talked about how we did see a contraction in Q3. But overall, over the last two years, GDP has generally been trending up. Now, what's interesting is, and something that's getting a lot of play in the Canadian media, and I think rightfully so, is if you look at GDP on a per capita or a per household basis, on that measure, what we've seen is GDP from its peak back in second quarter of, I believe it was second quarter of 2022, has actually contracted by a little over 3%. So on a per capita or a per household basis, GDP is already very recessionary. Think about it this way. Although headline GDP may not be saying that we're in a recession just yet, the standard of living for the average Canadian might be feeling a little bit more recessionary. So we do think that eventually the Bank of Canada will have to cut, just not right away. Does that tie into the fact that, and we've talked about this on our podcast a little bit before, I mean, inflation is a rate. So having gone through 8 or 9% inflation a couple of years ago, prices, the cost of things are just a lot higher than they were a couple of years ago. And even if the rate settles back down to 2% a year, consumers still have to pay 12% or 14% more than they did a couple of years ago. And So is this maybe a little bit expected that consumers might be cutting back? Because it's not like prices have gone down. They've just stopped going up maybe as quickly as they were a couple of years ago. Greg, that's a great point because the debate between level versus rate of change. From an inflation perspective, what the consumers care about ultimately is the level. But from a monetary policy perspective, what the central banks care about is the rate of change. And therein lies a disconnect. And through the price of money, which is what the interest rate is, right? It's just putting a cost on money and using that as a lever to either stimulate the economy or restrict the economy. And right now, obviously, we know because of inflation being high, the Bank of Canada, the Fed, the ECB, they're all working on restricting the economy to bring inflation down. In normal times, raising rates as much as the BOC did should convince consumers that the BOC is serious. But as I mentioned, there is a bit of a disconnect because the inflation rate is around 3%, but the consumer's perception of inflation is closer to 5 to 6%. Therein lies the disconnect because they're still thinking about the level, not the rate of change, which is why I think the Bank of Canada might be thinking that they need to convince that they are serious about getting inflation under control, which is, I mean, they removed the tightening bias in their, from their statement that they're still prepared to hike rates. They removed that, which indicates that they're getting a step closer to rate cuts, but they're just not saying that we're ready to cut yet in large part because of this inflation expectations component and making sure that consumers, households, businesses take them seriously. I got a question for you, Shay, and it relates to interest rates and the housing market, maybe specifically in Canada in this regard, but I guess in the U.S. too, because you mentioned that disinflation is in the pipeline and housing in the U.S. But with interest rates having gone up so much and so many mortgages coming up for renewal over the next couple of years, and the fact that the housing market has gone up dramatically in Canada for sure in the last few years, how do you see that playing out? Like, is this a worry as far as like debt levels for Canadians, Americans, etc.? I mentioned that one of the the key differences 
between Canada and the U.S. is on the household balance sheet side, where U.S. household balance sheets are a lot cleaner. Canadians, on the other hand, household balance sheets are not nearly as clean, and debt levels are at historic highs. So therein lies the challenge for the Canadian economy relative to the U.S. Now, what's interesting is the way the housing market functions is very different from a financing perspective in Canada relative to the U.S., where in Canada, you know, on average, people have at most, let's say, a five-year either fixed or floating rate or what have you, right? But it's a five-year term structure on average, and it could be a little bit less than that, but it's rarely anything more than that. While in the U.S., you can lock in 30-year mortgages. So here's the interesting bit where even though the mortgage rates have come down a bit recently in both countries, but at one point, 30-year mortgage rates in the U.S. were approaching or around 8%, 7 to 8%. The interesting bit is the effective mortgage rates, because most households refinance when rates were at historic low levels, when they were cut towards the zero lower bound and rates dropped. Most households refinance at those low levels back in 2020, 2021. So the effective mortgage rate in the U.S. is under 4%. So the run-up in yields that we saw and the higher financing costs most households didn't feel it, which is also why that transmission mechanism is taking longer, which is why we also avoided a recession. In Canada, that transmission mechanism is a little bit more direct, which is why we're feeling it a little bit more in Canada as well, because of that short term. If it's five years on average, I'll just do a quick math, you know, roughly 20% of mortgages are renewing and therein lies the risk, which is why a lot of the surveys that are coming out, particularly on the consumers and household side, they are concerned about the rising cost of mortgage and what that means in terms of finances. There is a risk, more of a risk to that channel in Canada than it is in the U.S. And then the U.S. also, both countries, what's similar is both countries have a shortage of housing. In the U.S., there was a dramatic underbuild after the overbuild that took place prior to the GFC. And then we went through a decade of underbuilding. And now, it's in the process of right-sizing that. So there is going to be a natural demand once rates normalize a little bit. So newcomers can actually, those that are looking to buy a home for the first time or buy a new house, what have you, rates coming down will make it more affordable. Right now, it's a little bit challenging, but the demand will be there once rates come down, rates normalize, because there's also been a very dramatic underbuild. In Canada, demand is also there because we know immigration has been very strong, and that's also been contributing in part to inflation with rent inflation being running up. But there is also an opportunity where even though we have these high debt levels, the point is we need more construction even in Canada because of the immigration and the disconnect between the supply and demand side of things. Once we get through this cycle and the downturn or what have you, we need things to normalize a bit. There is a positive story or positive angle here because there will need to be residential construction activity, which is obviously positive for broader consumption overall over the longer term. But over the shorter term, we think that because of the debt situation being what it is and households having to make a choice between the more they end up paying for financing for mortgage costs, the less they have of their disposable income for other discretionary spending, which of course will then of course have an impact on the Canadian economy. So short term, a little bit concerning for Canada, but longer term, there is an opportunity where there could be a bit of a tailwind because we need more construction, quite frankly, in Canada because of the supply demand imbalance. Quick question on government policy. Are there any current government policies that you see significantly affecting the economy and the markets or any proposed policy changes that you see on the horizon that could have an impact? 
no wholesale changes. I think the one, as it relates to what we were just talking about, that could have an impact is the recent decision for putting a temporary hold on foreign students, because obviously foreign students aren't the only contributing factor to there's temporary residents, there's permanent residents, as well as then student and student is probably third in the rank order there. But some of the research that I've been reading more recently on this, and it's just been recently proposed, so still trying to get our heads wrapped around it. But it, from what we can tell, it does seem like at the margin that should reduce some of the demand for housing. So that should help the Bank of Canada in achieving their inflation objective, right? Which part of it is the problem has been on the housing side. Part of it is the Bank of Canada's own doing because rates are so high. Mortgage interest costs has been elevated. But part of it is because of policy, government policy with the strong immigration numbers, which is obviously adding to demand. So if the demand side comes down a bit, that at the margin should help over the shorter term. So I think on balance, that should be positive for inflation and the BOC. One quick question. It's of interest to me. We heard a lot about quantitative easing, of course, coming out, well, out of the GFC initially and then post-COVID. And we know that the central banks have moved to qualitative tightening, quantitative tightening. And so the question is, like, where does that stand? I mean, quantitative easing helped to keep interest rates low across the yield curve. Is quantitative tightening one of the factors that's affecting the yield curve right now? Or is that strictly the level of rates as set by the central banks and the bond markets view of things. So QE was, of course, designed to help ease economic conditions. And QT has been in place in order to tighten financial conditions along with raising rates. The way the QT has been done both in Canada as well as in the U.S., it's been pretty openly communicated in terms of the amount of QT that's occurring on a month-to-month basis. So in a sense, there is no shock factor there that's kind of priced in. Okay. I see the market's interpretation of rates likely having a bigger influence on the yield curve than perhaps what the timing of maybe tapering of the quantitative tightening, which the Fed has clearly been talking about. The BOC has not been as explicit, but ultimately we do think that both central banks will be having the same discussions around if they're shifting from tightening to keeping policy tight to eventually easing, then naturally the progression should be from QT to, well, okay, let's talk about tapering that QT, the amount of QT that we're doing. From a yield curve perspective, it's been policy that's been driving it to a large extent. We've seen the yield curve, of course, was incredibly inverted at one point over 100 basis points, right around 100 basis points, I think it even reached at its extreme. And now we're not, we've been uninverting. A lot of that has been because of what the markets have been pricing in. The markets have been starting to price in a dovish outlook for central banks. And as a result of that, we've started to see the short end obviously come down a bit, but the long end has increased on the markets actually pricing in a little bit more of a positive growth down the line. So we have seen a bit of an uninversion that's taken place as it relates to the yield curve. And you know, looking ahead, so our view has been that the yield curve will continue to steepen, and we've seen a quite a bit of steepening take place. There could possibly be a little bit more steepening that's ahead of us in a large part because we think ultimately once central banks start cutting rates, they could potentially cut a little bit more than even what the, especially in Canada, cut more than what the markets are pricing. So therefore, you'll get short end moving lower on the rate cuts expectations and the rate cuts coming through. The long end, we do think that will also come down, but perhaps not as much. So we call it a bull steepening, if you will, right, where you see 
the entire curve falling, but you see the short end falling more. So you see that the continued steepening of the yield curve, if that makes sense. It does. And I guess uh, no one will forgive us if we end this podcast without talking about investments and investment strategies. So what exactly will be the stock market and bond market returns this year, Shay? <laughs> okay, we're not going to put your feet to the fire on that one. Okay, thank you. But given your discussion of the yield curve just now, what implications does that have for bond markets? So I won't put an integer per se, uh, a level, but of course, I'll give you our directional view on equities and fixed income. On balance, given our view of central banks, we are a little bit more positive about the fixed income outlook. We think in large part because we do believe that there will be rate cuts forthcoming. And in Canada, the markets are currently pricing in about four rate cuts. We think that ultimately, once the Bank of Canada gets going, they could potentially cut more. So obviously, more rate cuts in the market. More, but then what the markets are pricing would be on balance, positive, positive for fixed income, right? Yields down, prices up. On the flip side, from an equity market perspective, so even though we've reduced our recession probability, though they still remain elevated relative to history, we do think that a lot of that soft landing narrative, if you will, is kind of in the price. We know that U.S. equities for instance, they're trading at around 20 times forward PE. In a sense, it's in the price. So that's point number one. Point number two, the equity markets are anticipating uh, earnings growth around 10 to 11% for the S&P 500, which is now reflected in the price. So even if we have a soft landing, perhaps earnings are a little bit softer than what the markets are pricing. It doesn't have to be negative but softer than what the markets are pricing, there is potentially a risk to equity. So we do think that equity markets could be a little bit volatile. We don't expect or anticipate a significant drawdown in large part because we don't have recession as a baseline, but equity markets are fully valued, if you will. But on the other hand, we do think that there is some decent value still in bonds over the course of the next 12 to 18 months as that recession view or just the rate cuts get more properly priced in. Well, that's as close to a specific answer I think that we could expect. So thank you for that. We're going to have to wrap it up here pretty soon, but I do have one quick question for you that I know you'll be able to answer very well. There's lots of headlines these days about how it's different this time. We have a lot of investors that say it's different this time. And we often say it's not. It's just that the headlines are different, but it's kind of the same as past cycles to some degree. So what advice do you have for investors, just general advice on how they can deal with headlines and their portfolios going forward? I think that's the most important point. Gets back to where we started the conversation is the reason you have a plan, the reason you have an asset allocation, the reason why investors work with financial professionals like yourselves is to be able to survive the noise that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And that's how you protect yourself and achieve your investment objectives over the longer term is by sticking to your plan, your asset allocation strategy, and letting that guide you through. Because if we start getting into market timing things because, oh, 2022 was so bad and I have to be in cash, and then we'll obviously we saw what happened in 2023. I think it's a great example of how things can flip on a dime. Colin, you talked about you know the last two months were quite phenomenal, particularly for fixed income. Well, if you're jaded by fixed income because of what had happened earlier in the year, we would have missed out on one of the strongest and sharpest rallies that we've seen in quite a while in fixed income. So 
Discipline is what gets you through it. We don't think that the 60-40 portfolio is dead. That's another adage that's been coming up. Oh, the death of 60-40, we don't think so. Last year, again, case in point, it was a nice rebound for the 60-40 portfolio. And we do think that most importantly, fixed income continues to be a crucial diversifier. Uh, portfolio volatility, equity market volatility. So just staying to your plan, sticking to discipline, I think is the most important takeaway. Music to our ears. Yeah, the 60-40s back in the black, as they say. It is not dead. Yeah. It's doing quite well. Greg and I and our team put out a notification, a newsletter, an annual client letter, I guess you call it. And the two words we chose to describe 2023 were patience and discipline, that you needed to be patient and you needed to be disciplined in order to be rewarded. And that's exactly what you've just summarized for us, I think, Shay. Thank you. So I guess that's it. You're off the hot seat. No speed questions today, I don't think. No, I think we've used up Shay's time, yeah. We'll let you get back to directing the strategy at Wrestle and what that involves. Thanks for coming on the show for the third time, Shay. Really appreciate it. Yes, thanks, Shay. You're welcome. Happy to do it anytime. All right, well, next week then. (laughs) (laughs) Just joking. Okay, well, thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insights on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC with Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and its subsidiaries, including CIBC with Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kaminsky are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates, or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking, or other services for or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2024.